If you look hard enough past the flashing lights and billboard signs, past the busy streets and suburban houses, you might find a little truth hidden inside a great song. To the bedroom music makers and garage wall shakers, to the cafe singers and travelling bands, to the street buskers and vinyl crate diggers, to big city dreams and small town life. This is Between the Houses. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to episode four of Between the Houses. I'm Dave and I'm here with Sam. Uh, this is our last episode for the year. It is. Sam, how's your Christmas? It was good. We had a, a good time. We uh, got to see both sides of the family. You know, many various uh, meats were eaten, some to excess. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was good. I actually, um, I went to my parents' house and um, they just got this new spa that they're very excited about. Is that the real space-aged one? Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> it's really big. It's obnoxiously large. And my dad just falls asleep everywhere. I don't know how how he can do it, but just honestly, anytime he sits down, he falls asleep. <laughs> and I watched as he slowly fell asleep in the spa and his head just sank <laughs> lower and lower <laughs> into the water. And I didn't wake him up because I just wanted to see how far down he'd go. And he got submerged kind of under his nose and then he, he woke up. So. And no one else was like keeping an eye on him. Oh, everyone was keeping an eye on him. We just wanted to see how, you know, <laughs> how low he'd go. He needs supervision in the spa. He does, yeah. Full-time supervision. Um, how was your Christmas? Yeah, it was good, man. Um, pretty short-lived because uh, my wife was working. But, uh-huh. uh, we actually did my family Christmases the weekend before. Yep. So, in a way, we kind of avoided the madness, which is pretty nice. So, Christmas Day was just hanging out at home and she went to work and she's working through till New Year. So, I'm just hanging out solo with the kids. <laughs> went, to, went to the beach today, which is nice. Oh, nice. Yeah. I suppose for um, a lot of people listening to this, I would imagine a lot of you are actually heading into winter as opposed to the Australian summer that we have over our Christmas. I always find it funny when the carols come on and we're always singing about snow and white Christmases and it's dreaming just... Dreaming of a white Christmas. We yeah. really are dreaming of a white Christmas. So far from what we have here, it's always so hot. What's well, been your go-to uh, Christmas music this season? Well, we are very passionate about vinyl in, in my house and my wife, when I met her, she wasn't so into it, but now she's really into it and she tracked down the Home Alone Christmas album, so the film Home Alone, but it's songs oh, from nice. from both films combined onto a, yep. an exciting red vinyl. So that's been played a bit, but really I think we're... We're really into the Frank Sinatra Christmas albums, probably number one, yep. followed closely by uh, Bing Crosby with a, a sprinkling of uh, Phil Spector's A Christmas Gift for You, which is a collection of Christmas songs by like Motown artists, uh, which is really good as well. Yeah. What about you guys? What have, what have you been listening to? We've been giving Nat King Cole a pretty good run this season. There's just some really good, almost like something Kanye would sample, you know, for <laughs> some of the some of the intros for the songs and um i've been working some um on the player just like skipping back to the start of the track and it sounds like we're remixing the start of the song (laughs) and izzy just loves it man so funny yeah have you ever had a white christmas i haven't i've never experienced that yeah it's on my to-do list we've tried a few times 
in the UK, but we've stayed in coastal towns <laughs> thinking we would get snow and it just never happens. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, it's a shame, but that's okay. But one thing we do do is we watch a lot of Christmas films. Um, yeah. And sort of starting from, you know, the very beginning of December, we have quite a an, an extensive list that we work through. But we went to my parents' house a couple of weeks ago to watch Home Alone 2, yeah. which is sort of a rite of passage every year. And, man, it's just so good. It's so really, good. like, really, really makes me laugh. Tim Curry yeah. as, the, uh, as the hotel concierge manager. <laughs> so good. Yeah, that's one of the only... Um movie traditions for us at Christmas is Home Alone 1 and 2. What really gets me, what really tickles me more than anything else is the amazing vocal range that's on display from Marv screaming, <laughs> like a good Marv scream. Uh, case in point is the tarantula on the face oh, man. and the pigeons in Central Park. Man, <laughs> that just, I, I just lose it. So funny. You know what happened to me the other night? We we got all geared up to go and see the Christmas lights. Mm-hmm. In Melbourne, there's a few pretty well-known streets uh, where every house glams up and, and they sort of close the street off and people just walk up and down all night. Um, and obviously, it's summer, so, you know, people just stay up really late and walk around checking all the Christmas lights. And we hadn't had a chance to do it yet. We usually do it before Christmas, but uh, we thought, oh, I, I'm pretty sure they're open till you know, the new year. So, last night... We got all kitted up, put on our Christmas hats, pumped some carols on the way, feeling uh, full of Christmas spirit. <laughs> we turned turned up uh, to park and thought, hey, it's really quiet. Like, this is the first time being able to get a park straight away. Well, let's just drive up a bit closer, see if we can get a park closer oh, no. up. And the music in the car felt like it slowed down <laughs> You know, almost like a the needle on a record. Yeah. Just when you switch it off without taking the the needle off, because there wasn't one house with lights on in this really famous street in Melbourne. No, and there wasn't a car. There wasn't a person. It was just a ghost town. And we drove all the way along this street where there, it should be full of Christmas lights and kids running around with candy canes and people selling ice creams. <laughs> there was not one person and. We realised it must have been cancelled. Oh, man. I guess they didn't want the crowds this year. I guess so. Like, restrictions have eased in Victoria at this point, but they must have made the decision earlier just to save people putting up all those Christmas lights. Anyway, man, what an end to the year. I've got to be honest, that that was a real fizzer for me at the end of this year. <laughs> the kids were so amped for it. And then I just had to tell them, had to tell them because of the germs, they had to cancel the Christmas lights. Man. The final slap in the face from 2020. <laughs> As Dave said, this is the last episode for the year. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. If, if you're still with us uh, four episodes in, we're going to be back <laughs> next year, finishing off the rest of the artists that are involved in this record. And, and, you know, we're still talking about extending it beyond that. If people are into it, we're not sure yet, but... Yeah, I mean, we've had a blast doing it and we've, we've loved talking to the artists that we've spoken to so far and mm. uh, people telling us that they've been listening and following and really enjoying kind of unpacking these these artists and, and hearing about the songs in a little more depth as well. It's hard when you got that pain Like a thorn in your And it's calling out your name And it burns like 
So today we're talking to Aoife O'Donovan, uh, who you just would have heard on that track. Um, that's one of our new songs called Climb On Your Tears uh, that we just released with her. And she, if you don't know anything about her, you can really get lost down a rabbit hole of all the things that she's been involved in. Um, she was born in Boston, but she lives in Brooklyn now with her husband and uh, also has a lot of family back in Ireland. So we talk about that. She fronted a band called Crooked Steel. Uh, and they were like a bluegrass band uh, and they've released five studio albums. They've done two live records. She's also released a couple of solo records recently. This year, she released a a sort of EP called Bullfrog's Croon and Other Songs. And we talk a little bit about that. Um, it's a really interesting concept surrounding that EP and, and the poetry of, of a man by the name of Peter Sears. She also has a band on the side, a trio called I'm With Her uh, with Sarah Watkins, who you might know from Nickel Creek, and singer-songwriter Sarah Jarose. And uh, those girls won a Grammy at the start of this year, which is a huge deal uh, for a song they released called Call My Name. Uh, Alison Krauss has recorded one of her songs and she's just in general a very well-regarded and well-respected uh, figure in the bluegrass community, um, both in the States and, and around the world as well. And it was really wonderful to talk to her. Yeah, it was a great chat with Aoife. She's um, incredibly positive uh, about her career and her life as a musician. Even I loved hearing about her stories of touring as a mum as well. So anyone listening who... Uh, is an artist and a parent. It's really cool to listen to her perspective on that and how she just never asked any questions about whether she could do it. She just did it and remained positive and put the right people around her. So that was really cool. And yeah, we talked a bunch about what it means to be successful as a musician and, and about your identity as a musician. So that that's all really interesting stuff, I reckon, that as artists we we wrestle with a lot. So she had such a positive perspective on a lot of those things yeah she i mean she's a mother you know she's a wife she's a brilliant songwriter and musician and she remains able to balance all of those things it seems and and is really positive and, and passionate about creating and touring especially yeah uh, which I, I found really encouraging mm. anyway that's it from us thank you to everyone for following along with us with these interviews uh and listening to our music this year we really forever appreciate it and uh, we'll be back next year with a new record. Happy New Year to everyone. Stay safe and uh, we'll see you next year. Here's our chat with Aoife O'Donovan. Yeah, my dad is from Ireland. My dad's from Cork. And um, all, he's, you know, the only one of his siblings who made it to the States. And so they're all, they're all there. And I have... I'm very close with my cousins. They're all my first cousins. I grew up spending all my summers in Ireland. So, yeah. and, you know, have these incredibly close relationships with my first cousins that I feel are almost like sibling relationships. So your dad, your dad is the only sibling of how many? Nine. Nine who came to the U.S. Yeah. He has one sister who ended up in the Bahamas, but seven of the nine are in Ireland and, and they're all really close. It's a, it's like a very close knit family. So would you say you, you remember your childhood growing up in Boston or... In Cork. I mean, both. We had we had a you know a big 
community in Boston as well, obviously. And my mom's from Massachusetts and we have a lot of you know family and close friends here as well. But we would spend about six weeks of every summer in Ireland and a, a lot of it in Cork, but also I would spend a lot of that time in Clare with my cousin. So how, how do you remember splitting your time between Boston and spending your summers in Ireland? What was that like? It, it was just, just totally normal, I guess. It didn't feel strange at all. We had our, you know, our normal life in the US and then we would kind of get on a plane, get on an Aer Lingus flight and go to Ireland for, I guess, anywhere between a month and six weeks. Where, like, where did you feel like home was for you? Where did you feel the most grounded? I think when you're a kid, you kind of feel the most grounded wherever you are. I remember mm. I would get to Ireland and feel like, okay, this is home. But then I, I also remember landing this really specific feeling of walking out of the airport in Boston in the summer, in like the hot August air, and having that kind of like rush of humidity to my face and feeling like, okay, I'm home. Mm. But I would feel the same way when I kind of stepped out into like the cold July rain in Shannon Airport. So, you know, it's just kind of, for, for me, it was really wherever I was at the time. But yeah. Can I just ask, what did your parents do that allowed them to fly you guys to Ireland every summer? Because <laughs> it would get expensive, surely. It, yeah, you know what the, th- the thing is, is that my parents really made a commitment to that, mm-hmm. I think, to enable us to have these relationships with my dad's family. Yeah. Um, my dad worked in, um, still does, he's a radio host at WGBH, but his sort of main career when I was growing up was in sports. So he was the, he worked for the New England Patriots oh, um, wow. football team. Yeah. And he also was instrumental in bringing major league soccer to the U.S. And so he did have sort of a high powered sports executive job. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, it wasn't like I grew up at least in my mind, like, you know, in a really rich neighborhood or heavily with a really privileged lifestyle, though I realize now that I definitely did. Yeah. We lived in a, in a really lovely town called Newton right outside of Boston. And my parents didn't have nice cars or anything. We didn't, we didn't do a lot of other vacations in the year. They just sort of said every year, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And I'm so grateful to them for that because it gave us these relationships. And that's really what it's all about is having people in your life that you're close to who have your back and that, and, and trying to continue that in the next generation. One of the things that I was the most devastated about this year was that I'd planned a two-week trip to Ireland around a couple of gigs I was doing in June. And to not be able to do that was sort of like the hardest thing to lose in the pandemic was to not be able to go to Ireland, just to see my family. And that's definitely where I will go first when this is over. Yeah. So you've continued that tradition and that. Yeah. And and all my cousins have kids and, and I just love that experience of having deep, deep family. Do you guys have family like that? I mean, family's always been really important. And and the older I get, the more I feel that that's where I want to be investing my time. I mean, between obviously touring and playing shows, which is a big part of what I feel like I should be doing in in a life sense, you know, um, if I wasn't doing that, family is where I would want to be. I'm not really interested in in much else. But like you, Aoife, I have family back in Ireland as well that I haven't actually met because my mum was born there. Your mum was born there and then she came to Australia? Yeah. So she, well, she moved with her family again, quite a big family, but they all moved over to Australia sometime in the sixties, uh, because there just wasn't any work there. I think. Right. I'm not sure why your dad moved, uh, to Massachusetts. He moved in 1980. So, I mean, he was like, he was 25 or 20, I guess he was 23. He was born in 57, but they're in definitely in the sixties. Remember my dad describing growing up, you know, being born in 57 growing up in the 60s in Ireland it was it was almost like a it was a desolate place yeah. there was there was really nothing why did he decide to move away I think he he had lived in London for a couple of years he came to the US just kind of seeking adventure and ended up meeting my mom and and fell in love and went to grad school and just kind of stayed and and all of his siblings you know they were, they, there were a lot of teachers and 
some doctors and just, they, you know, they stayed in Ireland and really made great lives for themselves there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that, I mean, a lot of people, well, the three of us, we're all, I guess, second generation, like children of immigrants. My mum's Spanish and she moved uh, when she was, came over with her family when she was 18. My abuelito was out of work, nothing happening in Spain. So they, they moved to Australia. That must have been crazy because are there many Spanish immigrants in Australia? That's just so far to go. No, not at that time. Not at that time. They came over by boat, you know, it was, they had to, they stayed in a caravan, you know, in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales for a few months. And then they were settled in, uh, you know, sort of these dorms in, in Canberra, which is our, our capital city. And my abuelito got work as a bus driver and my mum wasn't even allowed to speak Spanish at home. Really? They, they really had to work hard to become part of the community. There was, there's no other Spaniards around or Latinos or anything. So That's so wild. Yeah, pretty isolating, I think, for them. But we've, we've talked in the past, I mean, about the older we get, the more magnetism we feel to, you know, our parents' country of origin and the, the travels we've done, you know, we've felt drawn to the places of our, our parents' origin just a little bit, feeling like we part of us belongs there. You know? For sure. And we, we have talked about this in the past before with um, in some of our earlier episodes, but just that, that strange kind of magic that you feel, yeah, when you're back in those places that you haven't even necessarily been to before, but there is family history there. I definitely felt that in Ireland. And we didn't even really get to see much of the country, but there was just some kind of energy about being there and even just like talking to the people and, and even just the music. Again, we've talked about like the, the folk music of Ireland. And like, were you kind of influenced much by the music over there when you were spending your summers? I mean, I imagine you would have you heard plenty of it. Oh, for sure. And I think that, that yes, a lot of the deadly die, as we called it when we were kids. But <laughs> my dad has always had a folk music, an Irish music radio show, you know, on the side. He was doing that the whole time he was doing his sports jobs. And he still does it. He's, he's called the Celtic Sojourn. And so we were really exposed to Irish traditional music and definitely, definitely influenced by it, even though, you know, when I was much younger, I probably would have said, no, no, I'm, I'm not into this music. I want to listen to Boys to Men or whatever <laughs> I was into when I was, you know, 11. Yeah, very pivotal as a young, young woman. <laughs> it's really, it, it is such a special place. And I think that the, mu- the fact that the music is such a part of the culture and not just the traditional kind of, you know, fiddle tunes and the the instrumental music, but also just singing. The mm. idea that singing is a part of how people communicate in Ireland and how singing is just so revered. If you're in a pub and somebody starts singing, everybody shuts up. Like it's just, you just, that's just what happens. If you were in a crowded bar anywhere in the States and somebody started singing, nobody would hear it. Like yeah. and that would just, nobody would be quiet and nobody would hear it and it wouldn't matter. It could be, you know, the best singer in the world. But in Ireland, an old man opens his mouth and sings a, a line and it's just, oh, shh, shh, shh. Kind of this respect around it. It is, yeah. It's really beautiful. I remember when we played in Dublin um, the first time, obviously really excited to be there. And we played at this little venue upstairs. I can't even remember the name of the venue, but we had the day off in Dublin and we were wondering what we are going to do. And I, I kind of felt like I wanted to mark the occasion with something. And we decided to be a little more rock and roll than we would ever usually be. And, and everyone decided, let's get tattoos. That's a cool thing to do on tour. Let's get tattoos? <laughs> it was the end. It was the end of tour as well. It was, so yeah. We wanted to mark. I don't know. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. So all we could find was this like one girl that was sort of open in the area that actually was a fan of the band and said, you know, I'll come to the venue and, and do them for you there. So we, we all got, you know, little tattoos in this dark backstage room 
Anyway, I went downstairs after that just to kind of get a bit of a feel for the room and the vibe. You know, people were starting to arrive and everyone was drinking at the bar. And I met uh, this beautiful family uh, that had come, actually flown over to Edinburgh to see us because we'd, we'd never played in Ireland previously. Amazing. And just the the hospitality, you know, they're like, oh, you know, you need to come and stay at our house next time you're here and things like that. And they every time we'd laugh about something, They'd slap me on the shoulder where I just got this fresh tattoo <laughs> and it, it hurt so much and I didn't have the heart to tell them, like just slapping this this stinging wound on my arm. That was uh, the Sound House. We played at the Sound, the sound House, house. in Dublin. Right. But I just, you know, I loved it. I loved the people over there. That's, and, that's uh, a really good story. I was really, I wasn't expecting it to go there. I, I, that, was, that was a great reveal. <laughs> that was a good time. The second time around in Dublin, we played at Whelan's. My favorite spot. I love that place. The thing about Whelan's, just like a fun memory that I just popped into my I had is one time I was there with my band I'm with her and we got off stage and we had this great show and we went to the next you know how the, there's the main room and then there's the other side is the other bar yeah. and we went in and Glenn Hansard is just there like what? just jamming just like playing the guitar and singing and there's uh, some other friends oh of his they're gosh. just having a jam and it just turned into this like wild jam session party that's my dream yeah. that's what we Th- dream of that's like and I've talked about this that was what I was looking for the first time we were in Dublin and all I could find was like cover bands playing oasis songs in the bars like i was i was trying to find that authentic You're trying experience. to find glenn hansard <laughs> i was trying to find glenn hansard i'd seen once i knew he was busking somewhere <laughs> but i just couldn't find him that's great yeah. you've toured with him haven't you i have yeah yeah he's he's so great have you guys toured with him because i know he's friends with julia too right julia stone yeah we didn't ask her about that but um i feel like they are both close with Thomas Bartlett. And that's the, I've met Julia Stone only once, but at Thomas Bartlett's studio, he's, you know, he's, he's worked with Glenn and I know he's worked with Julia. I, I sort of imagine them being in the same world, but maybe they're not. They're probably, she's friends with everyone, but Glenn Hansard and that's, that's someone we've always wanted to either work with or tour mm. with. I think in the early days when we were, you know, forming around acoustic instruments and banjos and mandolins, I, I definitely remember discussing you know, the new Swell Season album and talking about the sounds and the arrangements and, and being influenced by that for sure. When was that record? That was like 2008 or something? <sighs> I can't remember. I listened to it a lot. Well, we recorded it with Peter Cadis, who who did that record as well. He did the Swell Season record. Right. I, I really love that Swell Season record. And I know that Marquetta played the piano in Peter's home that we actually used on our most recent album. In Connecticut? In Connecticut, yeah, the very yeah. same place. He has a, a really cool studio upstairs in this old Victorian house, and that's where they recorded. And I remember sitting down at the piano thinking, Marquetta played this. I need to try and do it really well. <laughs> and that, the you, first yeah. song, yeah, the first song on that album is very much me channeling my, my inner Marquetta to try and <laughs> do well. But um, just going back to your family, were your parents musical? Like, because it seems like your dad obviously had that love for folk and Celtic music. And I would imagine that at least if they didn't play anything, that they were big music fans. They both play. They actually met through music. Um, they're both you know, big time musicians. My mom is, was a music major and she, you know, currently plays church gigs. That's like how she makes her little extra cash is like plays for weddings and funerals around town. Great. Um, but she's an incredibly accomplished pianist. She's really one of those, one of those musicians who, and I'm really not exaggerating. You can tell her any song she knows she can play in all 12 keys on the piano. Just no problem. She's just sort of the ultimate, almost annoying accompanist. You're like, you start sit, sitting down to sing a song from The Sound of Music and she'll just use it. Oh, can you do it a little lower? No, a little higher. Like you can just, she's just a really incredible musician. And my dad is a great guitarist and singer and, and just, yeah, they're, they love music and they love to play. And, and it's a big part of 
our sort of family life when we're all together as, as music. So would you say your early musical influence came from your parents, like more so playing and, and learning to play in Boston or when you were in Ireland hanging out with your family and playing and singing? I think both. I mean, I think that singing was, was always in sort of singing songs and learning songs. My parents had a ton of parties when I was growing up. They were kind of always hosting bands coming through town. A lot of Irish bands would come and stay at my house and, and we would have these big Christmas parties and there'd be music parties. I mean, it was really, it's just funny that that's how, you know, I really ended up kind of having that that lifestyle as well. But my mom would be at the piano and there'd be people jamming and, and singing songs all night. And so I was, you know, wildly influenced by that. And really, you know, I think some people would have rebelled against that and sort of gone a totally different direction. But I always loved that. I loved the sort of convivial aspect of, of music making, you know, in a large group. In Ireland, that was also a part of our life. We would have sing songs, you know, everybody would go around and you, you sing a song, you have a, you have a jam, but it's just singing. And my mom would usually be at the piano in those scenarios as yeah. well. I was going to say, um, your name is obviously Gaelic. What's the worst pronunciation you've had <laughs> of Eva? <laughs> well, usually if I'm, if I'm going to try to tell somebody my name, I say it's like Eva with an F. Yeah then people will kind of get it, but then I'll spell it. And then the next time I see that person, they'll say a fee or they just like, they, it'll, they will, and I'm like, well, we just hung out for like three days and you were calling me Aoife the whole time. And it's like, once they see A-O-I-F-E, they think like, oh no, like I, I was calling her the wrong name that whole time. The worst pronunciation I would say is oof. <laughs> that was, that, that was rough, but no, it's happened. I mean, I've been introduced, uh, you know, to the stage with the wrong name multiple times, but I think you just kind of laugh it off. And, and as I've gotten older, I'm just really quick to correct somebody. And it's not a big deal. I don't mind correcting somebody. I'm not embarrassed about it anymore. And I think I just That's like to right. nip it in the bud right away. Well, I've been calling Chris Thiele. I've been calling him Chris Thile all these years. <laughs> a lot of people call him Chris Thile. That's, you know, I think that he's, he's probably well used to that at this point. And there's a double E in there. Come on. Well, the, the, the funniest thing about Chris Thiele is that there was a great show at Carnegie Hall that Punch Brothers said with Nickel Creek, mm -hmm. Chris Thiele is mandolin player in both bands, obviously. And a friend of ours, Caitlin Canty, who's a great um, singer and songwriter who's married to Noam Pekelny, who's in Punch Brothers. Apparently, Caitlin's mom was in the taxi on the way home, and she said to Caitlin's brother, wasn't it just so funny that the, that mandolin player in Nickel Creek looked just like Chris Feely? <laughs> <laughs> and she, I don't know how she thought his last name was Feely the entire time. Also, how she didn't know that it was, in fact, the same person <laughs> in just a different outfit who had just been on stage. It was really... Oh, that's a great story. You get a lot of laughs from that one. Actually, I wanted to ask you, Aoife, about uh, your version of Lakes of Train because that is such a beautiful song. And we were introduced to Paul Brady's version by um, our friend Hannah Cameron. So she filled in for Christina on the last few tours. And she was a Paul Brady fan. And she said, you guys need to listen to this song. And his voice, the way he sings. And I actually, if anyone's listening to this, please go and listen to both Aoife's version of this song and Paul Brady's version. The song is called Lakes of Pontchartrain. I think people think it's like a traditional Irish song, maybe because of Paul's version and, Paul and Brady, some other right. versions. Yeah, but it, I think it's actually like a Louisiana Deep South song in terms of origin. I'm not sure, but I wanted to ask you about recording it. That song has always just been, I mean, I, I, and that's where I, of course, that's what my version is based on is the Paul Brady version. Um, he's he's really my ultimate singing hero. His yes. control. Oh, my gosh. His, the, and his, the way he expresses, the way he can make one note, one word just he can make one word have like a thousand notes and but nothing seems excessive or out of place it's just 
like every embellishment has purpose, which I just yeah. feel like is something that is really hard to accomplish as a singer. Like yeah. to just, there's nothing extraneous in any of his phrases. And it's, mm. it's so special. The vocal control, as you mentioned, I mean, you, you try and avoid listening to Mariah Carey at Christmas time, but you know, she's trilling all over the place. Paul Brady has these same sort of like control, these trills that he can do, but they're so nuanced and, and just really subtle. subtle. Yeah. It's beautiful. His voice is incredible. They're so meaningful though. That's what yes. I love about it. And I, also surprising because he has this emotional waver in his tone as well. Like it almost sounds unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. But then I was always surprised by his complete control of notes mm. at the same time. It almost seems like he's going to start crying or yeah. something. It's like, it's really, that song, I just, I just love that song. And I love, almost like when you listen to that song, it's like watching a short film. Yeah, Everything just yeah. feels very visual to me, like in his version. Yeah. And I, I have been singing that song for years at, at live shows and finally put it on this last little recording I did just to kind of, um, I just wanted to. And Jeremy Kittle, this fiddle player, wrote this gorgeous arrangement um, mm. for fiddle and cello. We ended up recording it with fiddle and bass, but uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm just happy that it exists out there. It's, yeah. it's my best attempt at, at trying to be just the second best version of Lakes of Unstrain. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a really beautiful version and I love that you uh, you did that. And I just wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about Peter Sears. So for those that don't know anything about him or the project you recently worked on that uh, involved his poetry, could you just tell people about him and Bullfrog's croon? Yes, I would love to. So Peter Sears uh, is was an incredible poet who was you know living in Oregon at the time of his death. He was the Poet Laureate of Oregon. He was on faculty at University of Oregon. And I came across his work uh, when I was commissioned with my friend Teddy Abrams and my friend Jeremy Kittle to write a piece for the Brit Festival, this incredible festival in Jacksonville, Oregon. Uh, we knew we wanted to write a piece using some sort of text that that tied into the area. And Teddy suggested, let's see who the Poet Laureate of Oregon is. And so we found Peter Sears' work. Um, we, we found Peter Sears. I mean, I kind of looked him up and I, I read a poem on, you know, Poem Hunter or something. And I was like, oh, I, I think I'm into this. And I got a book. And I just fell in love with his poetry. I really felt so connected to it and so moved by it. And I felt like his, the way he wrote almost casual poems mm. that, that were just so not even veiled and, and deep, but just like making real magic from, from sort of the most everyday sort of ordinary things. Mm. And, and then also tackling some really deep subjects. There's a, a poem that he has, I think it's called like to a young girl considering suicide. And it's just, you should look it up. It's just, it's stopped me in my tracks. It was so beautiful. And I ended up finding these three poems on night fishing, the darkness and Valentine and, and, and loved how they fit together. And, and, we wrote this piece. We met Peter Sears. He came to the premiere. So he, you got to meet him. I got to meet him and his wife, and he was just the most, the, the warmest, most generous person. He was one of those people who you just felt like you had known your whole life. Mm. He was so incredible. And, and strangely enough, I had been on tour with Mary Chapin Carpenter that summer while I was working on the piece, and I kind of casually mentioned to her at one point, like, I'm working on this piece, and it's this, these poems by this guy, Peter Sears, and she just burst into tears. And apparently he was her English teacher in Princeton, oh, New Jersey. Wow. When she was, you know, and he was one of the first people who encouraged her to be a writer and wow. just all these sort of beautiful connections. And he, he passed away, sadly. But um, there's actually an amazing piece that Oregon Public Broadcasting did on Bullfrog's Croon, where it's like a five-minute piece where they use a lot of him reading his poems. You should, I'll send it to you. It's like, it's a, just a beautiful piece of audio journalism that you should check out or anybody should check out if they want to learn more about him. Because I would say if 
people listening to this could listen to one thing of yours, I would recommend listening to that. I, I guess it's kind of an EP, but there are three songs that you refer to as a suite, and they're kind of these orchestral movements um, where you've kind of put music and, and melody to Peter Sears' words, and they're so beautiful, and I, I really found them quite moving and have continued to listen to them since I sort of discovered them. Uh, yeah, I would definitely encourage people to listen to it if they could get anything out of this. Thank you so much. Yeah, that I would love people to listen to that because that's, yeah, it's really special, a special piece for me and, and I, I would love people to hear it. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, I wanted to talk about this song that we recently did together. Which I love so much, by the way. I just oh. absolutely love the song so much. So do I, actually. Can I say that? Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> So <kinda>. good. <laughs> it's just so good. And I need to probably explain the backstory to how this song came together because this was one of the hardest songs to find the right voice for. And I need to say that I wasn't aware, much to my uh, my sadness, that I wasn't aware of your music. I mean, I knew Crooked Still without realizing that, that that was your thing. I just sort of knew the music, but um wasn't aware of kind of your solo stuff and what you've been doing before we first came up with this project and this song. And I had a really hard time feeling the position of who was going to sing on this song, yeah. like who was the right person to sing. And I had this voice in my head and I couldn't shake it. I was, it was like this really specific voice and I didn't know who that artist was that was singing that song, but I could hear the voice and it was really, um, really driving me to just keep searching. And I, I thought that I'd found it in, uh, I don't know if you know the singer, Erin Ray, beautiful singer yes. from Nashville. Yeah. And uh, she was actually the first person I went to with the song and, and sent it to her and she really liked the song. And I thought, great, okay, that's solved. But I, I think maybe upon reflection, looking back now, I, I think maybe I knew it wasn't necessarily the voice that I, I had dreamed, <laughs> but it was still like I love her voice so much. Anyway, so she played with the song a little at, at her home studio and she contacted me and said, you know what, like I actually don't think I'm right for this song. I, I don't think that I am the right voice for this song. I've been trying it all these different ways and it's just not working for me. And she kind of released it back to us. She's like, I love this song, but I'm not the person to do it. And this amazing kind of, maybe it was fated, I don't know, but I, I sort of thought, oh, I'm going to have to search again and was looking in like the depths of, you know, Spotify and YouTube and like just trying That's to find lurk. this voice. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, it just happened that I came across you performing Joni Mitchell's uh, Case of You on Live From Here with uh, with Chris Thiele. And, and that was the first thing I saw. And it was just like something ticked over in my head. I was like, this, this is the voice. This is what I've been looking for. <laughs> And it just worked out. And I, I can't believe that it just happened that way. You know, it was like very much like it was meant to be. And I'm so glad you're on that song. I love that story. That's, that's so great. I loved, I just remember hearing about it from my manager and then getting the track and people ask, you know, musicians to collaborate that you don't, you know, people you don't know ask you to collaborate with you all the time, right? That's just something that happens in the modern age. And similarly, when I got your song, I felt like, oh, Yes, of course. Like I have to sing on this and I have to sing with Sam. It was I just love it. I think it's such a great song. I love I just love the lyric and the chorus as well. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was tough to find the right person and, and when you sort of agreed to do it, I thought, oh, I think this is gonna be really special and 
It was quite amazing the way you recorded as well. So you had Jody working on it and he was in New York. In- exactly. So he was in New Paltz in his studio and he had this rig. He gave us a computer and this whole kind of mobile rig that we set up. I set up a little vocal booth in my closet and you know, it was just like being in a normal studio. It was just like being in a vocal booth and talking to the engineer, except he was in a different state. It was, it was bizarre. We did a ton of sessions like that over the summer. Mm-hmm. He's a great engineer to work with because, you know, he had the lyrics, he had the songs, he, he had, he had listened to it. He knew what we were going for. It was, it was kind of a seamless, you know, sometimes you, you show up to do a session and the engineer just doesn't have a clue what's going on. And yeah. I, I find yeah, that to yeah. be really frustrating, mm-hmm. especially when you're trying to accomplish something very specific. I love working with engineers who can kind of get into the song and get into the lyric behind the song and just just be present with you. Yeah, sort of co-producing your yeah. your part in the song. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it was a real honor to have you on that song. And I think the more digging that I've done on just everything that you've been involved in, especially recently, the, the more I feel like honored and, and full of pride that you're actually working <laughs> on this song. Thank you so much. Because, I mean, I, mean, I think we're while I have a love a really deep love for, for folk and bluegrass and, and sort of old time music. Like we're probably in different scenes that have maybe crossed paths here and there at, at for sure. some folk festivals and such, but very different scenes. But I've always, um, yeah, really loved bluegrass and, and, and especially your voice. Like I, I hear the history of the music in your voice and I find it really Thank moving. You so much. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what other way to say it, but um yeah, it was really special to have you on that song. So thank, thank you. Yeah, that's really, really kind words. And I think I think that I mean it's similarly to some of the other tracks we've done too. If the guest comes in on the second verse, it just it's such a nice surprise. But especially on Climb on Your Tears, your voice has I don't know, it has a character to it that especially coming in on that point just kind of melts you straight away. Oh. It's so good. <laughs> Thanks. Like you when you're working on a song and you know you're in the studio and someone puts a part down and it's just perfect. And it's almost, it's completed the song. Like it's that missing piece. And you just know you have this feeling comes over you. Like you're so excited about the song finally, because that last piece of the puzzle has been put in. That was the feeling. Oh, that's the best. That's just makes me want to, go back to the studio like right now yeah. just, this is what's happening every time i'm having conversations like this during the pandemic i'm like i just want to go record i just yeah. want to go play yeah actually dave i need to i feel like i should compliment you on your guitar solo in that song as well because it's really really something i remember when you played it i had the very same feeling like man like that is so good and i think i said stop stop like come in we need to go back and just grab that because I don't think you were really paying much attention to what you were doing, but yeah, it was really nice work. Thanks, man. Well done, you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, I don't. I think that was one of those parts where I didn't have anything written. I, I think I had some notes and some ideas, but we just played the track and I just played a bunch of parts over it and just ran a few lines and then we listened through and sort of pieced something together and went back and played it again. And it was. I would have said that's my favorite part of the song, but. When Aoife comes in on the second verse, <laughs> I, I just can't top that. <laughs> no, the guitar always wins. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your your voice is so unique. And one of my favorite songs of yours is Stanley Park. Oh, thanks. I can't underestimate how much I love that oh, song. Oh, thank you so much. It's so great. What's that book Jeff Tweedy just released? Oh, had released a while ago, How to Write One Song. Is it? Yeah, that was, like, that was like a year or two years ago. Yeah, right? I just listened to a podcast with him sort of unpacking that context and what a perfect writing day looks like for him what uh, what what is it well it's kind of starts in the afternoon the day before and uh he sort of 
uh, rifles through all the uh, the notes in his phone and the song ideas he's he's been singing. And he just he's uh, the least critical songwriter I think I've ever. Like he said, his favorite song at any time is the song that he's working on at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so he just pursues it until it's finished. And he, his day is very, it sounds really boring, but for him, it, it's like a perfect writing day where he's at the end of the day, he's, he's got a pretty much a complete song. And then he goes home and listens to records and gets inspired for the next day. Jeez, what a life. <laughs> is there, is there any sort of formula you have that you're willing to share the secret herbs and spices? <laughs> I actually feel like I love, I, I, I tend to like come up with sort of melodies and riffs and then I usually come, start coming up with lyrics when I'm running. Mm. That's sort of my, my time to kind of like start doing lyric ideas in my head. That's funny because when I'm running, I'm just hoping that I don't die. <laughs> are all your voice memos really breathy? <laughs> like I have so many ones that are like... <laughs> 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 well, that's, a, I mean, Stanley Park, you mentioned that I wrote that song entirely while running on like a really long run. Um, like the whole thing. And I came back to the hotel in Vancouver and I just like played it. And then I played it at a show that night and like, that has not changed since. Wow. I, that song is really like, that's a, it's like a deep, I, I, I love that song too. I'm, I'm proud of that song. A lot of musician friends of mine are like, it's just great to be home and I'm really enjoying this family time. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Like, I mean, <laughs> I am, I totally am. But but it's also uh, like, I, I felt like I had a really good work-life balance before this. I, I really yeah. didn't feel that I was lacking the home time. I feel like maybe it's because I'm also married to a musician. So there's that, that element is already kind of like we met, we were both musicians, we both travel, we both do our own thing. And also my daughter who's three, She's a very adaptable. She was on the road with me for a year and a half. She, Your daughter's Ivy? Ivy, Ivy Joe. Ivy Joe, sorry. And you said that you have toured with her. Oh, she was yeah. on the road with you. We had the most beautiful and magical experience. Um, my band, I'm With Her, which is really funny that I'm sitting in front of an I'm With Her poster. Don't, <laughs> don't judge me. This band that I have with Sarah Watkins, who's a great fiddler and singer, people might know from Nickel Creek, and uh, Sarah Jarose, who's another just, you know, absolute monster, multi-instrumentalist and vocalist. We have a trio and we had been kind of planting the seeds for this band for many years. We got together in 2015. We did a couple of tours. We made a record with Ethan Johns and the record didn't come out until February of 2018. That's when we kind of jumped on our, our big world tour. Now, Sarah Watkins and I, I remember very clearly in like 2016, we had this conversation being like, well, we, we want to have kids. Like, it'd be great. It'd be so awesome if we could have kids around the same time. Like, it's probably never going to work, but it'd be great if we could somehow figure it out and we could take the kids on tour. But like, that's kind of a crazy idea, whatever. Turns out that we literally got pregnant and were due within six weeks of each other. <laughs> And we're able to um, finagle the situation where we had, we found a Mary Poppins-like tour nanny, mm -hmm. this amazing woman from England, actually, who came on the tour bus with us for the first year. We had another great nanny the second year. 
Um, and we just jumped on the road. Literally, I w- Ivy Joe was six weeks old when we when we left for tour, wow. and we toured to you know all over the world. It was great. It was so great. I'm really intrigued as to the logistics of how <laughs> it actually works. So you had the nanny on the tour bus, yeah, because we've been trying to like wrestle with how is this doable? How do people do this? It's totally doable. I feel like I mean, and it's not. I feel like it's not talked about enough either. It was honestly easy. It was literally easier on tour than yeah. it was. It would be harder to come home. I'm, yeah. I'm not joking, but I think it was because to have two moms and two babies mm-hmm. and a nanny, and then the tour manager, the sound guy, and Sarah Jarose, and the merch person. So there were, it was like one big family. Everybody was so helpful. Everybody was just like raising these kids as if they were their own. It was, I mean, it was unbelievable. You have to have the right people, obviously. Yeah. You can't have the sound engineer hate kids or <laughs> like, that just doesn't work. Everybody has to be up for the crack, you know, before it starts. Yeah. But if you have the right combination of people, it it just was a breeze. You just you know it's like the schedule of the day was you'd wake up. We would wake up with the kids. Um, nanny would take over around twelve and be with the kids till dinner. Mm-hmm. Then we would all have dinner together, and then we would, you know, we would give the kids a bath in the dressing room or the green room. Like we had like <laughs> a little portable bathtub. And we'd stick it in the shower of whatever shitty venue we were in, and then the nanny would go out to the bus and put the kids to bed at seven thirty, and then we would do our show, and then like have a beer it was so it was awesome and so this tour mary poppins she's obviously experienced in tour nanny did she sing songs <laughs> were there songs there there were well there was just so much crazy magic that happened she was great so that was she was our nanny for the first year when they were like really little babies she she was more of like a baby expert mm-hmm. and then the following year we had another tour nanny who was like a, another mary poppins but more for older kids who has been that she's you know tour nannied for Tons of Canadian rock star bands. Oh, She's like man. a hardcore yeah. celebrity yeah, okay. nanny at this point. I can't wow. believe she actually toured with us. But pe- there are people who exist like that who just like know all the cities, know all the libraries in every yeah, city, yeah, know yeah. all the playgrounds. And just, just, yeah. I'm just trying to work out. I mean, you come off stage night after night. Like it, touring is exhausting. Oh, yeah. I mean, even even bus touring can get very um, tiring at, at times. But what happens like when the kids wake up screaming and and you need your sleep because you've got to perform the next night? I guess the thing is, and I don't know if this is like a a mom thing, but you actually don't need that much sleep, number one. You don't. (laughs) When we were younger, partied too hard and stayed up all night and you still wake up and you still go to the radio show at seven in the morning and you still have a great day and you still have a great show. Mm -hmm. Like it's, yes, we do need sleep, but there's something about the, the energy of tour. I feel like you just kind of go with it. It's not as crazy as you think. Now, that being said, like when we would, I remember the first weekend we went away without the kids and just like sleeping for a full night. Like (laughs) the first time we actually left them was when they were about six months old. And, and we went, we were in Europe and we left the kids in Paris for four (laughs) days because we had to go to like Stockholm, Amsterdam, Oslo and Berlin or something each day, every, a different city, every four days. And then we met the kids in Amsterdam. The nanny and Sarah's husband flew with the babies to Amsterdam. We met them in Amsterdam. And they were like six months old. <laughs> they were six months old, speaking French and wearing berets. Really? And then like, I remember Sarah and I, you know, like traipsing through these European cities, like, because we were still nursing our kids at that point and like carrying, you know, satchels full of like semi-frozen breast yeah. milk. It was just like such a bizarre, like, and then you'd leave it at the hotel lobby and, and it'd be like, has anybody seen my cooler? It's full of... Milk and they were like, oh, poor what? <laughs> the support band wasn't raiding your fridge at that point. No, 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 no. Those days are long gone. But it's um, yeah, it, it was it was really fun and and, you know, I often think like I don't know how 
that's, that's been an interesting thing being home for, for me for the last year is sort of like not having any support. It's, I mean, obviously I have my husband who's incredible, but having been a parent sort of in a group setting for pretty much my child's whole life Mm -hmm. to then go down to a nuclear family has sort of, has been more challenging because I haven't really ever had to do that before because Mm -hmm. she was so little when we went on tour. I remember our first flight was with Sarah Giroux and there's always multiple people to help me like carry things or do things. And it's, um, to that. Yeah. yeah. So do you think is the secret to raising a child on tour, just having the right people and the right community around you? And also the right attitude, I think. Yeah, for sure. Just if I think if you're the kind of person who really doesn't like to try, I think it has, because I love to travel so much and I love being on tour so much. I think that that's me at my happiest. So therefore I think, you know, people always say happy, happy mom, happy baby. It's like, I feel like because I was just so stoked to be doing what I was doing, it yeah. made me a better parent. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're obviously energized by being on tour, so that helps. Exactly. So it's like, I think I probably would have struggled more with sleep deprivation or just with like loneliness had I just been sitting at home, you know, doing laundry. I don't know. It just was easier to be doing something I love to do. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there is a little bit of a stigma about being a woman on tour and having a baby. And, yeah. Oh, for sure. Can, you know, can it work? Or is this something that I have to give up? because I need to be a mother to my child. And I don't know, I feel like there's not enough talk around the fact that it is actually possible to do both, you know, to have that music career and to also be a mother. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's really amazing that you, you did that and that more people need to hear that it is possible. For sure. And there's actually a great scene here. I remember before we had the, the girls, um, we were on a text chain with Brandy Carlisle and with oh, um, Carrie Ann from Shovels and Rope and Amanda Shires, like all these people who had kids that are a couple years older who had taken them on tour buses and got all the tips of like, you know, what travel crib do you need for the bunk and how do you sterilize bottles and like all just all that stuff that you just, you know, you, you kind of need somebody to tell you. And then our friend Emily from Mandolin Orange was having a kid a year after and she just, you know, would call us like once a week being like, okay, like I've ordered this, I've ordered this, like what should I do about this? What should, and just kind of, you got to keep on imparting the wisdom down the, down the line. Yeah. I think we need to get in on that text chain. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hit me up. Aoife, Sam introducing you to me as more of like a bluegrass artist with Crooked Still. Hearing your own stuff, there's so much depth to your songwriting and the way your music moves it keeps me guessing I think and and that's why I love it so much and I find it so interesting but your when you started writing music what really influenced you as far as the way you sing and your sound like did you have any artists that you dreamed of being like or yeah I mean when I started writing music it was in a very specific um phase of listening to I remember being really into this band called The Story that was sort of like a 90s band with Jonathan Brooke and Jennifer Kimball. And if you go back and listen to sort of some of their early stuff, also Suzanne Vega, like was, my dad had kind of turned me on to her. That was obviously before my time, but mm-hmm. but he he was really into her records and kind of got me really into her first record, Solitude Standing, or that one that really became a big, big deal. And there are some songs on Solitude Standing that if you listen to and then you listen to some of my stuff, you're like, oh, she's really ripping, ripping that off. But <laughs> I feel like when I was first writing songs. Yeah, it was that. It was, I was really into the Indigo Girls. I was really into, into the story. I was really into Ani DeFranco. And, and, uh, and I was also really into the music that my parents were listening to, like Joni Mitchell and Paul Simon and Crosby, Sills and Nash and Tom Rush and sort of this old, these, these kind of old time sixties and seventies artists. Yeah, cool. And I think that it's, I mean, 
I wish I could say that I've evolved, <laughs> but I haven't really. I feel like those are still a lot of the people that I listen to and, and a lot of people that are still influencing me. That said, I did just finally listen to Beyonce's Lemonade all the way through today. And I know it came out in 2018 or I don't even know when, 16, when did that record come out? But I know I'm late to the party, but <laughs> damn, like I, I just hadn't gotten all the way through it from start to finish and... I just want to put it out there to say that I was inspired by that. Nice. Yeah. What was I listening to today? I was listening to the Bonnie Light Horseman album. Oh, man. man. My favorite, one of my favorite records of, and the last show that I saw before uh, quarantine started. Really? Mm-hmm. How were they? I feel like that would be amazing. It was, it was like, you think that the record, how could it be better than the record? It was yeah. so electric. It was, it was like the record on steroids. It was literally like listening to the record, but as if you were like on acid or something. It was so good. It was one of the best live shows I've ever seen. Really? Yes. That guy, um, Eric T. Johnson, the Fruit Bats guy, is that, that's his name, right? I don't actually know him personally. but yeah, I think so. I know Aeneas very well, and I, I love her. I'm such a fan. I kind of went to the show expecting to be like, yeah, Aeneas is the goddess, and I'm just obsessed with Aeneas. And I left the show being like, Aeneas was great, Josh Coffin was great, but holy moly, his live performance style was just like, just off the charts, like just insane. It was so, so good. I'm a huge Fruit Bats fan, but what he did with Bonnie Light Horseman, I I didn't know he could sing that well. That's what surprised me about it. It, it, It's so good. That whole record, like, and then they, um, in the magpie's nest, in the magpie's nest. Mm. Oh God, I love that record so much. I'm going to go listen to that oh, after man. this. Yeah, I think that album came out at the right time. The world needed that one. Yeah, I listened to that so much at the beginning of quarantine. But of course now, you know, like I don't listen to anything really except for whatever Ivy Joe wants to listen to, which is like eight hours a day of Swan Lake. Literally, no exaggeration. <laughs> that's pretty good, Swan Lake. It's, I mean, you think it's pretty good. Like you, you think that's good, but then not when you have to be Siegfried <laughs> the entire time. And like, and it's just, it, it's full on. Yeah. Yeah. I spend most of my days, uh, running around dressed up as Kristoff from Frozen singing all these parts. <laughs> we have all these capes in our house and even my son now is always bringing the orange cape up to me. I mean, my daughter also loves Frozen. I just feel like I've tried to just sort of like nip it as much in the, as possible. In the <laughs> why is that? Why, why is there this feeling that we, because I, I totally agree with you. I just, there's this rebellion inside me that wants to. Well, it's actually, I actually like the music in Frozen. I think that the, um, that the window is open and so is that door. I didn't know they did that. I think that's a great song. I like the songs in it, but there's something about, like, I have no idea how she even found out about it. It was just like one day she, she knew every character from Frozen. She knew the entire story. She like knew the songs and this was in the middle of quarantine. Like I, I don't know how she found out about it. I feel like it's like a virus. It's an airborne virus <laughs> yeah. that just comes in the through their beds. Pandemic. And then the, the, the three-year-old little, little girls wake up and they're just like, oh yeah, no, I know all about Elsa. And she wants to wear the Elsa dress and the, the whole thing. It's Yeah. No, the, the frozen pandemic hit our household very hard through, through okay. our own doing. Uh, we really left the windows open there. Okay. But, um, <laughs> At the same time, it's, it yeah, could be like worse. She, it could be she worse. loves music. Yeah, it's a nice story. They're sisters. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree with you. <laughs> so when you had kind of come through this growing up phase of being influenced by uh, the music that your parents were listening to and, and also finding your own way uh, in terms of you know, what you found to be good music and influencing your own songwriting. You eventually went to uh, the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. How did you find that? Because I've not been to a school of that caliber. Uh, I went to the very community version of something like that in my local area. But I was always very intimidated by a lot of the players because I wasn't that good. I, I kind of knew the skills that I had and I was 
still developing them at that stage. And there were so many players that I was just felt way out of my league. I mean, so did I. I com- completely, I, I still feel out of my league. <laughs> it's sort of like, how did I get here? Um, I, I ended up at NEC um, at the suggestion of my music teacher in high school who said, you know, there's this program. I think you should check it out. It's this guy. It's, it was a subset of the jazz department called Contemporary Improvisation. It was called the Third Stream Program. And it was run by this guy named Rand Blake, who was sort of an avant-garde jazz pianist, mm-hmm. uh, who you should check out, a really bizarre cat who has made some incredible music and, and a lot of great music with vocalists. Cool. And I remember going and auditioning and having to sort of do an ear training, kind of like a, like a, a melodic memory, like a ear training test. And... And feeling like, oh, well, I, I, there's no way, like, I, I just totally bombed that. I sucked. And I, I did end up getting in. And my whole first, you know, month there, I, I sort of had that feeling like, why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I here? And and slowly found a community and realized that everybody was just learning and everybody was just getting started. And, and it yeah. was a really incredible place for me to kind of learn. And, and I feel like I was really given incredible guidance by the faculty there and really given the the skills that I was able to kind of turn into the career that I have, even though it, you know, what I do now doesn't really have much to do with the jazz department at NEC or or even contemporary improvisation or some a lot of things I studied, but I think it really helped make me a a fuller musician for sure. Mm. And you kind of formed Crooked Steel while you were at that school, I believe. Yeah. Right around that time. Yeah. I mean, was there much of like a local bluegrass folk scene in Boston at that time? Yes, there was that, that, that was a, that was sort of separate from the college scene completely, but there was a big bluegrass scene in Boston at the Cantab Lounge, this lounge, this little bar dive bar where crooked still got its start in cambridge and it was a burgeoning bluegrass scene i remember going there was tuesday nights there were these epic jams and i saw natalie portman there like that her she was she was still in college at the time she you know she went to harvard so she was like i just remember one time she came to that jam like that's how hip it was it was like a very very big bluegrass it was kind of like the place to be total dive bar total total dive bar that's what we like yeah (laughs) i mean i'm i'm just assuming here but i i feel like a lot of the people that listen to our music at least also i feel like in australia there's there's not necessarily a huge bluegrass scene but i just want to speak a little bit to the skills of some of these players the technicality behind some of these these bluegrass compositions and just the players, the skills that they have. Yeah. Some of those fiddle and, and mandolin and banjo players, incredible. Yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, definitely the younger generation just keeps on, like they just keep on raising the bar, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're all these kids who are kind of studying at the feet of people like Chris Seeley or Mark O'Connor or Stuart Duncan, and they're kind of taking it to the next level and just kind of keep on upping the ante. It's, it's intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> those damn kids. So what was it kind of around the time that was pushing you into that kind of genre of music? And was it just going to this, this dive bar? Or? It was kind of what was happening, you know, externally. That was right around the time Oh Brother Where Art Thou came out. It was literally that same year that came out in uh, the spring of 2001 or the winter, you know, that kind of winter over 2000, 2001. And that music was just kind of gaining popularity and gaining steam. And, and I had obviously, you know, been aware of it and was exposed to it through my dad and kind of like the, the folk revival. Mm-hmm of the sixties, like that was sort of like one of the first bluegrass kind of revivals or that was when, it, when a lot of it was really happening, you know? Yeah. And I remember just going to the Cantab and kind of learning a bunch of tunes and then met Rashad and Greg who didn't go to any seed. The bass player from Crooked Steel did. He and I were buddies and met Rashad Eggleston, the cellist and Greg List, the banjo player and ended up forming the band. And it was never really even like, I mean, I was 18. It wasn't like, all right, let's start a band. I feel like things are really different now. They're a lot more calculated when people are starting a band. It's sort of like, all right, we're going to do this and we're going to, yeah 
get the demos and we're going to make the Facebook page or get the SoundCloud. And it just wasn't like that in 2001. It wasn't like that at all. Yeah. You just started a band and you, you were, did the band for fun and you tried to book some gigs, but it was like, it just, I mean, the crazy thing is, is that that's, that's not, that's 19 years ago. Like it's, it, but it feels like a, comp, it feels like it was 50 years yeah. ago in terms of how much it's all changed. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, very much. And I think back then things like films had a lot more sway oh. in kind of pushing uh, almost a movement. I remember when Oh Brother Were Out There came out and I feel like the Coen brothers have actually done a lot to bring back kind of old-time music. I think of like uh, Inside Lewin Davis as well. Like yeah, for sure. Bringing that kind of music back to the masses. So I feel like when that film came out, yeah, people were reminded again, like, this is such great music and it continues to be. Yeah, and young people were really into it too. And I think it, it, it had always been happening. Of course, like, you know, in the 90s, there, 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 were, there was so much great bluegrass music. People like Alison Krauss were really coming up. And obviously those, Gillian Welsh and Alison Krauss were really given like a huge boom from Oh Brother Where Art Thou, but mm. they were still putting out records in the 90s and touring and making a living doing it. Like bluegrass definitely existed. I just yeah. feel like it wasn't as kind of like polished or hip. And then it kind of just became that way yeah yeah i just i just want to make a note of uh, you mentioned crooked still and and forming that band and for our listeners who don't know about crooked still obviously they're a progressive bluegrass band five studio albums two live albums is it i think so we have, i mean we haven't even we haven't really been an active band in gosh in a long time and like mm. really in eight years mm. and this this is a band again for our listeners that consists solely of strings yeah right? fiddle fiddle cello banjo uh bass like it just amazes me how you would write a song with only with those instruments like how how did you go about like arranging songs and because there's crooked still parts i think i listened to it and i and i think is that a distorted electric guitar oh no it's just <laughs> like a fiddle with cello, some sort of yeah. yeah like low string fiddle it's um the, that was the, the sort of the most creatively rewarding thing was arranging. We, we really did mostly traditional music and mostly old music that we sort of rearranged for, for the ensemble. And we would often like, you know, find field recordings, old acapella, like an old lady singing, you know, just like a ballad by herself and kind of start with just the melody and come up with, you know, a track, like a, an arrangement of a line, a melody line for the, the fiddle and cello, a banjo groove, a riff, a bass part. And, build these these songs that, like with those pieces in mind it was really mm. really fun process and I, I we got to play actually a year ago this weekend we were on tour that was our kind of reunion tour last year it was such a blast awesome. and we did a live from here show and then i think about six other shows around new england and then yeah yeah what was that experience like i mean you've been you've been playing with crooked still since i mean you were 18 19 yeah it's about 10 years how did that feel like stepping out on your own for the first time it was good it was i mean it was obviously a little scary because you know when you're in a band you guys know you're in a band and it's sort of you, that's your family it's all for one and you're everybody's making decisions together and it's sort of if you have a bad show, it's everybody's had a bad show and you can kind of, you know, comfort each other. Like, oh, there were only 10 people at our gig. Yeah. And yeah. If, if you're having great success, then you can really, it feels amazing. Nothing feels better than sharing success, right? Nobody mm. wants to have success alone. Like, what's the fun in that? But Crooked Still, we, we were just sort of ready to, to kind of, we, we were never a full-time band. We always, everybody always did other things and it was a natural, it just felt like a natural time to kind of branch out and do sort of for, for everybody in the group to sort of step away and do, do their own things so right, okay. while it was scary it was it was really fun and it was a long time coming and um i think it's been i've been so 
grateful as the years have passed that we have been able to sort of reconvene and do kind of the odd show here and there because mm. there there aren't any hard feelings and we have we still have a great relationship as you know a group of five friends that can come together and make music and it's it's really fun yeah it's great that there's kind of that respect for the band but also for you as as an individual but i feel like the bluegrass community in general is really kind of tight-knit like everyone seems to know each other there's a real sense of community around it there is and everybody plays with everybody else too i think that's that's the thing that that maybe it separates it from a a lot of other worlds i mean it's more similar to the jazz world in in that like you know somebody will be on this record and then somebody will be on this record and and these people will be playing together uh, do this tour together and then these people will be on this tour together it's really it is a really tight-knit community and and gosh like i mean that's that's i've just been missing that so much is that that community and just seeing friends and having those relationships just that's one of the things that you that the best thing about being on tour is going to all these towns and seeing your friends, right? Like yeah, and yeah, running into right. friends that yeah. that you wouldn't normally see, but that um, in festivals and, and just sort of sharing a beer and, and maybe getting to sit in with somebody. Yeah. And it is a very yeah. tight knit scene. In that sort of community, I imagine a solo endeavor doesn't feel so isolating or scary. No, and I think it's it's been great because when I, even when I've done solo stuff, yeah, you're just you're opening for somebody or you're on tour, you know, opening for Glenn Hansard and getting to actually be buddies with the people in his band. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the first night of the Glenn Hansard tour actually was in LA, and I remember Sarah Watkins came to the show and she sat in with me at the at Disney oh, Hall great. with opening for Glenn. So wow. just things like that that are. It is a very tight-knit scene, and I feel like everybody has your back in, in, in our worlds. It's it's really special. I feel like we could we could use a little bit more of that. I mean, at least in Australia, because there's definitely certain scenes where everyone seems to know each other, and then there's other scenes that I think everyone kind of does their own thing. That's right. And I, I really kind of envy that, that closeness of the bluegrass scene and that everyone kind of knows each other, because I feel like that's how it should always be, you know, with music, that people should just... You know, we have that in common. We all love music. We all play music. And that's mm. something really special about sharing that with, with other people that do it and sharing those experiences. And Well, I think that the, the thing that, that makes it that way is the shared repertoire, I think, is sure, really a yeah. large part of that, which is that, you know, if you're, you have this, this bulk of material that you all know and you know you all know it. So if you're at a jam session or there's like, you know, a big the closing act of the festival is like, all right, everybody who played today is going to come, come on stage. And also everybody's playing acoustic instruments. So it's like, you can just run up, run up to a mic and, <laughs> yeah. and jam or sing on the chorus. And you, and you have that shared repertoire. So I think that that's the main thing that I feel like separates bluegrass specifically from even like Americana or, or yeah. rock or any other type of music is that we, we have this sort of like this catalog of stuff that we know. And it's really easy to see somebody and be like, Oh, do you want to sit in with me? And like, like, Oh, I don't actually know anything from your latest record. And you're like, doesn't matter. Let's do Midnight on the Stormy Deep. Yeah. And like, great. What key? Yeah, it's not so easy to um, lift out huge effects boards. And <laughs> exactly, yeah. And plug into amps and you don't see the edge like wheeling no. in to, to perform one song with someone at the drop of a hat. No, no, no. Well, we kind of got thrown into it because we hadn't played any folk festivals before, but we were playing, uh, we did like the Mariposa Folk Festival and then we... I knew you were going to bring up Canada. <laughs> yeah, well, we did the Winnipeg Folk Festival. Which... I knew you were, I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> which I love, but we didn't, we didn't understand how the workshop thing works. So for the people that don't know, it's a very common thing at these folk festivals for uh, these workshop sessions where they might have three artists. Um, in our case, it was us, uh, Andy Schaff and Basha Boulay, and we were kind of all thrown on this stage we didn't know each other and everyone kind of goes and performs a song and the culture is that you kind of join in you know you have this jam session together <laughs> and kind of play each other's songs but 
we're coming from this scene where no one does that. So we had no idea what we were doing and everyone's trying to join in and like getting the chords wrong. And I don't know, I felt like we were awful. But at the same time, I, I loved it. I really loved that experience. But um, yeah, we were just totally out of our depth, like had no idea what to do. At home, I was going to say like, like the, the touring... The touring industry back here is, is a little more isolated. And I think to, to what you said before, Sam, we've always, I think we've had our head down, like working hard on our sort of international presence and our, our touring world. So going to festivals like that and being part of those things yeah, is a new experience for us. But I, I imagine you're pretty used to that, Eva. Well, I just, the Winnipeg, I just, I feel like that's the most it ever is when you're up on stage in Winnipeg. <laughs> and like, if you're trying to do something that you don't want anybody to, to, to join in, it's just so <laughs> So awkward to just be like, try to get through the song. I'm like, I just I feel like I've been in that exact situation. But but you guys know that band, the Cat Empire, the Australian. Oh band? yeah, very well. We love those guys. Uh, yeah. They, I remember doing a workshop with them at Winnipeg with Crooked Still, Cat Empire, and the Ducks. Wow. This is like, I mean, this must have been in 2005. This is a long time ago. I don't even remember like what we played. It was 15 years ago. But it was, I remember it being like everybody just kind of brought their most, their easiest like three chord, yep. no weird <laughs> measures songs, and so. And it just ended up being like a, just a crazy, it was probably very, you know, samey. If, if you went back and listened to it, you'd be like, every song is the same tempo and yada, yada. But, but it was so fun. And I just, I love, totally love those guys. Is that the first time you had Latin percussion and trumpet on your songs? Probably, probably the first time. <laughs> There's a lot of talent in that they're band. They're so good. Do they still play? Oh yeah. yeah. They're, they're huge. They're like, I think they're one of the biggest bands in australia yeah. in terms of like international success they play huge venues everywhere yeah they've and they're really well loved at home are know. they like in their 40s now then because they've, they've just been playing for so long yeah, they've been together for a long time we've actually we've done a lot of festivals with them we keep running into them all around the world and uh, such lovely people and, and really talented they're so yeah they're so sweet they um i've saw them first in Edinburgh in 2003, mm -hmm. I was there just visiting friends. I was, you know, 20 years old and totally fell in love with them. They were in this tiny tent at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I mean, like they were playing a set to could not have been more than like 50 or 100 people. Man, that's definitely changed. Like all crammed into a tent together. And um, they were like an unknown band. Mm -hmm. This is this just years ago. Yeah. And then then I think they kind of were in the process of blowing up and getting really big. And by the time they were at Winnipeg, they were headlining Winnipeg yeah, two yeah. years later. So. One of those bands you can't you can't not yeah. love them yeah. or enjoy them, especially Yeah, live. for sure. I mean, I love Winnipeg Folk Festival and I, I really would love to get back there and play. I think we've been talking about it since we played it. And I remember the year we played, headlining on the Saturday night was like the Staves and Ryan Adams. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be great. And I had the worst experience at that festival. I started feeling a bit unwell during the afternoon. And <laughs> I was like, please don't do this. You know, like I just want to see these bands tonight because I, I really love both of their, their music. And it got to the point where I was like, I actually need to go back to the hotel. I'm feeling really unwell. And the bus ride... And you're an hour away. Yeah, it's like 45 <laughs> minutes on a bumpy bus to get back to this hotel. But I thought, I've got to do it. So I was on the bus just getting progressively worse and worse and worse. And I, I felt like delirious. I was having like these kind of hot flushes and I was sweating and kind of like holding my backpack in the seat, kind of moaning to myself. And it just came upon me. Like, and I need to say, like, this is a really gross story. And, and I never vomit. Like, I'm just not a vomiter. <laughs> But on this occasion, it just came upon me and I was like, I don't even think I can make it to the front of the bus to ask them to stop. And all I had was my backpack 
and I unzipped my backpack and I just let it rip Ew. in the backpack. Oh, gosh. And I was so sick. I've never... Did you take everything out? Yeah, first? I did, you know, what I could. And I would have never felt so sick in my life and I had to swing it around my back and walk off the bus when we got oh! to this hotel. <laughs> and I just... I just passed out in in the room and I missed all the entertainment that night. I didn't get to see the bands. And then the next day I had to go and perform one of these workshops just trying to hold in my my awful stomach feelings. So, you know, that was my Winnipeg experience, but uh, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, these are the less these are the lessons we learn with age, isn't it? Because I my experience, do you remember Sam it's uh, at Falls Festival? Yes. I actually I missed Cat Empire that That's night right. because when we arrived Around midday, and it was about thirty degrees. Our our backstage, our food was already there in our tent, and we walked in, and I was so hungry, and I think I ate about half a wheel of brie cheese. <laughs> Just I unwrapped it straight out of the out of the packet and ate it, and I don't remember it being very cold, but it was sitting in the sun all You're day. Just, you, did you throw up in your backpack? Not in my backpack, but I was. Uh, I think Grizzly. You were side stage watching Grizzly Bear. Watching Grizzly Bear, yeah. having the time of my life, and. Uh, that, that quickly ended when I had to run backstage. I think I might have even been on the big screen. Like people could have seen me running oh, from one side of the stage to the other, oh, no. <laughs> running down the stairs. And I spent the, the rest of the night in our um, Kia Carnival feeling very unwell. That's so wild. I was just going to circle back to uh, the sort of folk jams, the kind of workshops that we do, because I feel like I read somewhere that I'm with her kind of happened through one of those. Totally. Is that true? We happened we well we don't you know we, we had all been friends and, and buddies but we really did get together at telluride there was a workshop telluride bluegrass festival which is a really magical place there's a workshop that they put together you know one of those sort of kind of eye things of like all the girls all together and you know <laughs> but it was great it was it was the three of us and um tiff Merritt was there nikki bloom was some other amazing badass women and we worked up a couple of songs. We were kind of were the only three who could meet up beforehand to work up some songs. And we just kind of had ended up having this this blend that we'd never the three of us had never sang together before as a trio. We'd we'd sung together, I had sung with both of them, and they'd sung with each other. But we ended up kind of having this great kind of magical morning, working up the tunes, did the workshop, it was a blast. And then later that night, Chris texted me, Chris Thiele texted me and said, oh, do you want to come and, you know, open, play 20 minutes before us at our late night show at the Opera House? And I was like, great. And with the girls. And I asked Sarah and Sarah if they mm-hmm. wanted to, if we wanted to like just go put together a crazy set for, you know, this late night show. It started at one in the morning. Cool. Wow. And we, we said, fuck it. Yeah. Like we, we were having margaritas at the time. Like we were just a total, like we were done working for the weekend. So it was just full, like all the pressure was off in this one way. And we had, it was just one of those electric magical nights. And we, we did this set and it was like one of the most fun things ever. We stayed up all night. We played with punch brothers. We were just having a blast. And a couple days later, Sarah Watkins texted us and was like, guys, is this a thing? Like, (laughs) is this a thing? Like, just kind of like we were, and then, and then it was kind of like dot, dot, dot. And we were writing back and, and we were kind of like, did you, did you like that? Like, was that fun for you? Like, are you as into me as I am into you? And, yeah, and yeah. it was unanimous that we were all, you know, equally into it. And it just kind of went from there. It was really, it was totally a lucky, it was crazy. Sarah Rose wasn't even playing at the festival that year. She was just there hanging out. Wow. So it was like a, a really successful first date. It was a really successful first date. Exactly. <laughs> Cause you, you guys recorded that album. And I know you did it at uh, Peter Gabriel's. Real World, yeah. Yeah. Wow. If you look that place up, it's nuts. Like that. It's I always see that studio in like you know top ten 
best studios in the world. I think purely because it's such an interesting place. Um, and he did that with Ethan Johns as well. And then you guys won a Grammy. Not not one of the songs on that record, actually. A different song, a single, a single that we put out uh, next year. Sure. Okay. Still, you won a Grammy. <laughs> yeah, we did. I know it's it was a, it's crazy that that was this year. Like we started this year at the Grammys and. <laughs> we were like 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel the weight of that, or is it, is it more something that other people notice and constantly congratulate you about? It's yeah. It's I mean I think that you know anybody who's in the industry knows that those things, while they're lovely, to it's it's incredible to be acknowledged by your peers and by something like the Recording Academy. Like it's not the be all end all of it. Doesn't I don't want to say it doesn't mean anything because of course it does, but it's not. It doesn't change things in the sense that like you go out and then you you all of a sudden make more money or you all of a sudden have more people at your shows. But it but it does, I think, change change some things. It does open some doors for sure. Actually, and I think most specifically for me, like I, I've been, you know, as I said, in Florida this fall and I'm starting work on my next record and have come into a really incredible relationship with an audio university down there called Full Sail University that that, you know, a lot of the great engineers have gone to. Their their graduates have or have won like, you know, win hundreds of Grammys and Oscars every year. It's a really cool school in Orlando. It's this crazy facility. And I'm able to record there this autumn as sort of like a, this sort of understanding that students will be able to zoom in and watch my sessions oh, wow. um, with this incredible world-class engineer, this guy, Darren Schneider, who's amazing. And I, I mean, they have never said, oh, this is because you've won a Grammy, but I feel like things like that, like, I feel like that must be it. Like once you yeah. have something like that on your resume, they're yeah, like, yeah, it's almost, yeah. Like having the, having the Grammy is like in the medical world, having, you know, Dr. Aoife Donovan, it's, it's like having a, yeah, exactly. Or, or in like the, if you went to Harvard, like everybody knows that actually Harvard isn't a better education than UMass, but right. some Sometimes things like that open certain doors and that's maybe a little dumb, but it's, you know, it's just how the world is. The way I see it, I mean, for the musician, like the song is the achievement, not the Grammy. Exactly. And I think that the fact that it was for a songwriting award really, to me, feels like a, a great achievement. Mm, yeah. Like I, I just love, and and kind of like what I was saying before about being it being with a band, to have written that song and to, to sort of remember, and I think I'll, I'll never forget the writing process of that song and recording that song and sort of making that track and how special that was for us. Like, I'm really glad it's sort of commemorated with this little statue yeah. that is, you know, on my, on my liquor cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were talking earlier about touring and I mean, we spoke about touring with family and with a kid on tour, but for you, I mean, even with, with your solo career, how have you found the difference between touring on your own and touring with a band? Well, I haven't, you know, done much touring since I'm with her, since the I'm with her record. It was about to do a big tour in, in March and I was supposed to be on tour this whole year behind the EP that I put out in March, Bullfrog's Croon. Right. Touring on my own is obviously just on a much smaller scale. It's, you know, smaller venues and I'm usually either by myself in a, in a car or in a minivan or if I'm in Europe, I'm kind of flying around and taking, getting little rental cars or taking the train. I, I love touring alone though. I really do love that sort of smaller scale solo experience. I, I, I love to read, I love to run. And, mm. and those are things that, you know, and I love going out to restaurants by myself. Like I just, I really enjoy that time. And um, I look forward to being able to do that again. So would you consider yourself an introvert? No, not at all. I'm, I'm actually, I'm the total opposite. I'm right. very social and, and I'm, I'm, I would say I'm an extrovert. Anybody who knows me would definitely say I'm I'm not an introvert. Yeah. But I love being alone. I think that that actually a lot of extroverts probably love being alone. Yeah, they just don't get I the think chance. So. And I mean, maybe I would probably feel like I'm the same as you. Maybe 
I'm at an age, I mean, I'm 35 now, so I feel like maybe, just maybe I'm mature enough to know (laughs) when I need time alone and when I need time with people. It's true. I mean, it's like, it's, and the funny thing is about, this is like the other thing about being home this whole year is just a little bit of alone time. Even tonight when I was listening to that Beyonce thing, like I had been with Ivy Joe all day and because, you know, my husband's really working, he's working a lot and I'm, I'm not really working, you know, I have little things I have to do, but I'm not doing sort of like business hours. And he took her, he just took her out for a couple of hours. And I just was, it was just so nice to just be in the house by myself Mm -hmm. and listening to what I wanted to listen to and chopping onions without being worried that somebody's hand was going to come up on the cutting board. You know, just like, just, just little things like that. Yeah. Yeah, Every experience is a hundred percent experienced instead of half your brain being focused elsewhere exactly yeah yeah. so i i I really do look forward to um even just getting emails from my manager this week about you know hopefully being able to go back on tour Mm. and do some european stuff in may and even planning really far ahead to next january in 2022 and and i do believe that that touring will come back and that will um can i say i just i love hearing about your enthusiasm about touring and how much you unashamedly Love it. I, I think for us, um, I mean, all of our our partners are, are non-musicians. So for us to go on, away on tour sometimes feels like a bit of a guilty pleasure. <laughs> it's it's so I, I sometimes feel like I'm like a kid in a candy store because like, I'm like, how, how do I still like doing this this much? It's really weird to me even like, even, and this is the thing, even if I'm having the worst day, and this has actually been true even for live streams, if I'm just so dark on like the pandemic or the music, but I, I just love to, to perform. And, and I actually have been able to get through that, even to do these live streams to a new room, just to be like, okay, I'm performing. Yeah. And I'm so joyful when I'm actually doing it. It's like, it's the minute that it stops that I'm like, this sucks and I hate the internet and I hate everything. And I, you know, yeah. never want to do a live stream again, but it's like when it's actually happening, it's, um, I do love it. And I think that I just cannot wait to do it again. And it. I'm really excited about the live stream we're doing. Chris Steely is coming up here. We're, oh, we're doing like a full week quarantine and multiple COVID tests. And we're going to do a concert together from That's here. That's great. Because so, our, our families are very close friends. And so his kid and my daughter are great buddies. And we'll- I was actually going to ask you how you met Chris. Because, I mean, for people that don't know about Chris Steely, he's kind of, if you're talking about mandolin, he, he is the mandolin guy. He's not the only one, but he is definitely a prominent player. I mean, I remember listening to him as a younger man in, in my kind of introduction to bluegrass and buying a mandolin and, and wanting to play like Chris, being a big like Nickel Creek fan and, and such. Obviously, I was a terrible player and, and gave it up, but I still play it every now and then. But, you know, you guys have worked together a lot. You've done uh, multiple records involving him and you've done uh, obviously the live from here which for people that don't know was uh, it was like a radio show, wasn't it? That used yeah. to be called something else. And then Chris took over and it was live from here. And you guys were doing like shows at the New York Town Hall on Saturdays, which I'm very thankful for because that's obviously how I discovered you doing that uh, beautiful Joni Mitchell cover. Uh, but yeah, how did you guys meet? We met a long time ago. We met actually at the Philadelphia Folk Festival almost 20 years ago, like in August of 2001. Um, he was playing with Nickel Creek and I was playing with a band called the Wayfaring Strangers. And we didn't really become friends probably until five or six years after that. I think it was like 2006 that we became friends just through, like, just like through the scene. I, I don't even really remember like how we became friends, but we've, you know, become very close friends over the years. And is he in New York as well? I would imagine he's in New York. Yeah. yeah. And he, and he, he and his wife, I mean, his wife, Claire is one of my best, best friends and he's very close with my husband, Eric. And, you know, just, we've just made so much music together and spent 
so much time on the road together. That's, that's the funny thing about, I've, I've done mm. so much touring with Punch Brothers and Chris and I have done touring with Goat Rodeo. Like we just, we just have so much history now at this point with, with Live From Here and with like sort of all these tours and all these projects that we've, that we have. And it's, um, it's been great in recent years. We've just had this really great family connection as well. So it's just great to have friends that you can also make music with, yeah, you know? Yeah. We've definitely experienced that as a band. And I, I remember reading an interview with you recently and you talked about the importance of kind of working hard, but also in terms of like viewing music as a career, like you really have to love it. And young artists kind of are, are always asking for advice. And I feel like in many ways, like the, level of success that you've been able to have is what a lot of young artists would aspire to. And I maybe say the same for some of the places that we get to play as well. That's looking back to younger me. That's what I've always wanted to do. Of course. Yeah. I mean, also look behind you guys here in these beautiful homes with like, your studio and your books. It's like, I feel like that's, that's the thing when you, when you start out in a career in music and you have a band and you don't know where it's going to take you, but it's like, you get to 35, 38, like this is life. Like this, it's happening right now. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, and I think yeah. it was only in, in recent years that I've sort of stopped thinking of myself as being like 22 and like trying to get to the, to the next thing and sort of be saying, all right, like this is it. it we're experiencing it and we're just going to keep on And you, and you do have to continue to work really hard at yeah. it and hundred percent, you have to love yeah, it. That's a really good point because you say, um, you know, you've only just kind of sort of recently been able to appreciate it for kind of where you are. And, and so often people talk about the idea of making it that, that specific uh, wording of it, you know, how do you know when you've made it? And even the level that we're at, and I'm sure the level that you're at, you're always looking at people that are doing bigger and, and better things than you and sometimes thinking, gee, I would, I would really love to be at that level. But you forget that the level that you're at is many people's definition of success. So I guess my question is, what is your idea of success? And have you obtained it? I, I think that, that sort of acknowledging that you've obtained success just feels like a way to st- stop striving for more? I, I don't know. I mean, yes, of course, like I have been successful in, in things that I've set out to accomplish, but I feel like I, I don't think I'm satisfied, but only because there are more things that I want to do. And there, and there's, there are more songs that I want to write. And I, I feel like I actually constantly feel like I'm not doing enough. And I'm not, especially in the pandemic, because I just, with having the child care situation, like I just haven't had enough time to really yeah be creative and, and sort of, and sort of have that time to myself. And, um, and I'm really looking forward to 2021 where Ivy Joe's going to go to school starting in January. And that's going to be so great because I feel like I'll be able to sort of set more realistic goals for myself Mm. in terms of what I want to creatively accomplish. And I hope to have a long career full of many things. Like I hope to get to collaborate with you guys in person. I hope to get, there's so many things I want to do. And I feel like if I were to say, yeah, I've, I've, I've achieved success or I am successful now, then it's sort of like a way to say in music, nothing is permanent, right? So it's like, yes, I've, I've been successful at the things that I've set out to be successful at at this point. Some of them, not all of them, most of them, I guess I would say, but there, there just feels like there's so much more to do. Mm-hmm. How do you guys feel? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the, the phrase people use, do you feel like you've made it? I would never say that. And I think my reply would be, no, we're making it, you know, every day, every project, we're making it, we're making what we want to do happen. And I, there's never, I mean, there, there's moments along the way, like a show you might play or a, a Grammy you might win or something that happens where it's sort of like an, an exclamation mark in the road of, you know, the journey of artistic pursuit. But I think I agree with you. If, I've, if you admit that you've made it or that you've arrived at a successful point, it seems like 
maybe an excuse to stop. Yeah, or sort of rest on your laurels because I feel like it's it's you you have no idea. None of us also. Is, I mean, gosh, if anything has been laid bare by the pandemic, it's the fact that like we really don't know what the future holds for the performing arts mm. and. I think that it's, you know, putting out new music right now and, and sort of creating new music is, is so important because we have to, you can't just say, well, I don't know what's going to happen, so therefore I'm not going to do anything. Mm. Or you're, I'm just going to sit on this until I know I can go tour and, and you know, the tour is going to come right after because it's, it's just not how it's going to work. You That's have right. to, the wheel just has to keep turning, I think, for all of us. That's right. But also if I look at my career of being a musician, you know, from being in high school, you know, playing in front of the... Um, the drama club or, you know, that, that to me was making it, you know, I, mm. th- there hasn't been one part of my journey that I haven't loved or enjoyed or, or felt like is more than I ever could have dreamed of. So oh, I think I love that, that for sure. Every part of the journey, you know, playing in a punk club to 50 people and, you know, having a microphone kicked into my face, that <laughs> they're some of my favorite memories. Right. And those were moments in my life that I remember being the best it could ever be. So it just, Every step up or down is, is all part of making it. I yeah, think. yeah, for sure. And I think if you're the sort of person where you know that you're in it for life, you know, like the, you are just going to create despite whatever happens because that's what's in you to do, then you're never going to stop and you're never going to feel that you've made it because it's constantly evolving and it's constantly changing. Right. I think all you can do is be true to yourself and, and the sort of music that you want to create. And I think when you do eventually get to that point, it may be at the end of your life that you can finally look back. At least you know that everything you did, you did because it, it's what was in you to do and you never stopped. That's, yeah, that's the thing. You can never stop. It's really, it's just wild to think about. It's wild. And, and I think that I, I, I'm curious about people who sort of are deciding in this time to, that they don't want to be on tour or maybe that they don't want to make music mm. or don't want to do whatever job they were doing before it and... I do feel really lucky that this has sort of, you know, made me want to double down on music making in, in whatever form. Like, I just know that music is such an important part of my life and, and will always mm. be, will always be a, a big part of my life. Aoife, thank you so much. We've had so much fun chatting to you. Yeah. You guys are so amazing. <laughs> I just like, I'm, I just have loved hanging out. I feel, it feels like the hang. It's been so good to not only have you sing on our track, but just to learn more about you and your music and listening more to everything you've done it's just awesome well likewise and i hope that someday we can all hang and our kids can play and <laughs> be at a festival and, and just be having a blast can't, I, can't, I know it'll happen i can't wait it's really just thank you guys so much for having me on the podcast and for being such warm great souls this is so fun <laughs>